The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Louise Maisel. And if you are at all interested in a couple of areas of asset management and allocation, you're going to find this to be really quite intriguing. He set up a firm 30 years ago to make emerging market fixed income investments. And LM Capital Group has been doing that for the past three decades. Uh, they basically do their own due diligence. They check out all of the various bonds that they buy on behalf of clients, uh, not relying on the traditional rating agencies. And um, they're essentially 99% owned by their employees. It's a very interesting shop. And Louise does a wonderful job explaining why emerging market debt has really become an asset class unto itself, given how soft um, actual yields are and that half of the sovereign wealth debt these days, over $9 trillion, is actually uh, holding a negative yield. Uh, he thinks EM debt is going to be a not only a distinct asset class, but it's going to attract a lot of capital uh, over the next decade, and, and he's very bullish. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with LM Capital Group's Louise Maisel. My special guest this week is Louise Maisel. He is the co-founder and senior managing director at LM Capital Group, an emerging market fixed income shop managing over $4.2 billion in assets. The firm was founded in 1989 and is privately held. It is 99% employee owned and provides a fixed income active management approach with a global macro overlay. Luis Maisel, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much, Barry. So you uh, launched this firm in 1989. You're pretty much in the middle of a giant bull market. What made you decide to go into bonds instead of stocks? I started a second firm, Barry, actually the fir a first firm, LM Advisors, which was managing money for high net worth individuals. 1984, July 18th of 84, the U.S. eliminates the 30% withholding. Up to then, foreign nationals could only invest tax-free in T-bills or in bank CDs. All of a sudden, they open up the market. A lot of U.S. brokers f fly out to Mexico City and try to grab some of that money. And my friends started to call me saying, you are in the States, we know you, why don't you help us surf through this new way, new market? So we did, for five years, we were managing high net worth individuals, but they were being managed like pension plans because they were mostly tax exempt. Mm -hmm. And from there, we jumped into the institutional market. So that was 1989. Um, but you bring a very different perspective to the management of uh, assets. How did growing up outside of the United States 
shape your view of, of the world, be it developed or emerging markets? Think of it as planets. People in the U.S. think that they're sitting in the sun. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is the center of the universe. For us foreigners, we see the U.S. as the biggest planet, but it's part of a system. So it's very interesting to see the impact of the U.S. on the other planets, but it's not the center of the universe. It's just the biggest planet in the universe. And now we have China becoming another very large planet. How is that going to impact uh, the, the way the U.S. is perceived? I think the U.S. is still by far the most important country in the world. The Chinese, just because of the sheer size of population, over four times bigger than the U.S., will be very big. But in the income per capita, they're still very small compared to the U.S. And their model of growth, which was export to the U.S., makes them smaller when you are gearing to become the big one you're far away from it. Huh, quite, quite interesting. So academic studies have shown that passive management of stocks has a tendency to outperform active over long periods of time. But the opposite seems to be true in the fixed income department. Active uh, fixed income strategies outperform passive. Why is that? Well, you have a choice on what bonds you buy. The bond market basically is like a landmine. If you don't step on a mine, you're going to do okay. And the move along the yield curve will allow you to react faster to what's happening in the economy. The passive uh, in the index does not take into account the macro impact that's happening in the bond market. So how do you go about creating a macro overlay for fixed income investing? That has always been our approach, Barry. We analyze, for us, money is a commodity. When it's scarce, it's expensive. When it's plentiful, it's cheap. Mm -hmm. So we analyze, we develop the matrix, you know, going from a qualitative process to a quantitative way of processing is not easy. If you put three economists in a room, they're gonna come out with four different theories, probably all of them wrong. <laughs> so what we try to do is doing our macro analysis, studying the growth of the com of the countries, growing, understanding the inflation, the economic indicators. We assigned a value to each of them. We created a matrix which gives us a point count, and we call it the trend score, which allows us then to go into the benchmark we're using, which the client is requesting us to use, and the the trend score will give us how long or short the benchmark do we want to be. So when you say trends, I tend to think of equity trends where a market or a stock is trending either higher for a long period of time or trending lower for a long period of time. Do you have the same meaning of the word trend in fixed income or does it have a slightly different meaning? I think it's pretty similar, but what you're trying to understand is the current and future needs of money. Mm -hmm. If a country is growing very fast, you know there's going to be competition for money. If the deficit of the country is big, you know that the government is going to place bonds and is going to siphon out money from the economy. If unemployment is very high, then you know that there's not going to be a lot of need. There's not going to be brick and mortar investment. So money will be plentiful and rates are going to come down. So there is a trend on what's happened in the past 12 months that will impact what will happen in the next 6 or 12. 
So when we look at the great bull market in bonds in the U.S. from the days of Paul Volcker breaking the uh, back of inflation in the late 70s, early 80s, we've enjoyed a, I don't know, let's call it 33, 35-year bull market in bonds. Is that still in effect? And second, how does that bull market in bonds in the U.S. affect the rest of the uh, world? We were in a secular trend towards lower rates. There was an enormous addition of liquidity into the system coming not only from the states but from all central banks. Mm -hmm. The European Union was placing an enormous amount of money in the system. So was the Bank of Japan. So was China. A couple of years ago, we saw a reversal in the trend. The announcement of the reverse of uh, the easing, the quantitative easing, and the announcement by the Fed that they were going to start raising rates created a mentality that we had hit bottom and we were starting to trend upwards. But now we've seen that stopped. I think that the issue of an upcoming recession, I don't believe it's coming. It's a little bit like the wolf. You know, everybody mm -hmm. keeps crying the wolf is coming. We are not accustomed to a long period without a recession. But ever since globalization started in the world, the whole theory changed. The formula of the past is no longer applicable. So would you say um, tales of the death of the bond bull market have been greatly exaggerated? I think that we're going to stay with low interest rates, especially if we have big deficits. If we have an easing Fed I think we can go on for several more years without a major increase in rates. Wow, quite, quite fascinating. Let's go back to 1989. You have this big set of tax changes. How much of a game changer was that for launching uh, a fixed income farm? Actually, the game changer for LM Capital was the growth of uh, pension plans wanting minority money managers. Mm-hmm. You know, the change in, in the 1980s, that became exactly. a, a stronger issue. Maxine Waters was at that time already, you know, pushing for it. Huh. She's still in the in the in Congress and she's still doing the same. The change in loss came for the high net worth individuals or foreigners, not for pension plans. But there was this big push for hiring minority money managers. Actually, they were carving out small pieces from the big allocations, from the big RFPs. The big funds always have been very biased towards using the PIMCOs and WAMCOs of the world, sure. Black Rocks, but there was a desire to use African-American, Asian, Hispanic companies. So we saw an opportunity there, being a Hispanic firm, to pick up some of that money. So that's the way we started. Nowadays, it's emerging managers. It's no longer minority. There was a court case that stopped the use of minorities as discriminatory. Huh. And by now, we're a little bit too big to be considered emerging. So we have to compete on performance. So, well, that's that's not the worst thing in the world. So when you say RFPs by big institutions, your clients and potential clients are these giant funds. They put out a request for a proposal, and you respond with a proposal, and that's the basis of either winning the business or not? Is that a fair way to describe it? That's correct. They will get probably 30 to 40 responses. They will pick up five or six finalists, and then you they visit you, 
and then they pick up three or four that present to the boards, and then the board decides who gets the money. So what are those beauty contests, as they've been called? What are they like when when a firm comes in and starts kicking the tires and looking around your shop? What's that experience like? It's an interesting experience because you have the numbers to show for performance, but they want to understand the process. They want to understand the people. They want to make sure you have the back office to support it. Compliance has become so important. The most interesting part for me has been that Almost all the teams look identical. Three men, one woman, everybody 6'1", weighs 203 pounds, wears Brooks Brothers suits. And in our case, we're different. First, my accent doesn't, well, it helps. I don't think it hinders anything, but I'm not the typical presenter that they normally have. Mm -hmm. And I tend to joke with the boards and try to be more casual. Probably when you are a smaller firm, and you own the firm, you feel that you don't have to explain to anybody why you made it or you didn't make the, the cut or did you win the business or not. Mm-hmm. So I like to enjoy this competition. I like to, I enjoy to to be f- fighting against the big boys and hopefully sometimes winning. So is that an advantage to be relaxed and casual and informal and joke around with these people who are used to much more formal stiff the the group that you described sounds like they're all manufactured in the same factory and maybe that factory is Wharton or Harvard Business School but the fact that they all look so similar and speak so similarly does this give you a a tactical advantage when you're presenting I think that in many cases it does in others they expect to have that and they want that traditional present presenter I'm also product of the same school, you know. That's I, right, you went to Harvard, went to Harvard school, also. Right? So, but, so then my partner in the business went to the to Annapolis. Mm-hmm. So you have the square American 6-1, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. And you have this crazy Mexican coming in and joking with the board. So I think the combination makes them laugh and it makes you, it makes you different in their eyes and they remember you more. Memorable, right. So I have a friend who's at PIMCO, and uh, he always he's now retired, but he used to complain that he doesn't have time to um, to do anything or go to conferences or what have you because they're so busy managing a trillion dollars in, in fixed income. And I used to bust his chops by saying, yeah, but it's not stocks, it's bond. That's, that stuff practically manages itself, which is a joke in the middle of a giant – bonds bull market but the little tiny bit of truth in that is how how much was it like shooting fish in a barrel during the fat part of that bull market you had rates coming down from what 15 percent down to practically zero how challenging was it operating during that giant long-term trend there are two problems managing fixed income. One is making sure you don't step on a mine, as I said before, mm-hmm. that you don't buy a WorldCom bond or an Enron bond or a Pacific Gas and Electric bond. On the other side, you have the matter of liquidity and size. It's not easy to be a PIMCO when you have when you decide to move and you have to sell. 500 million or a billion dollars worth of a bond, 
you have to find another piece, another buyer on the other side. It takes two to tango. And for them to find the counterparty is very hard. For a firm like ours that you move with 10 or $20 million, you can always find the other side in a transaction. And after the crisis in 09, they allocated much less capital to the desks. So they don't have inventory. So when you want to do a transaction, you have to go out and bid it in the market. And it's very hard to find a big chunk of, a, of the same product if you want to be have commonality in your portfolios. If, you, if you're a buyer, what about if you're a seller? Same like, story. Like my assumption is if I have a ton of bonds to sell, I pick up the phone and I call BlackRock and they buy whatever, whatever is out there. They will not. <laughs> the thing is they don't want to allocate money to bonds. They don't want to park money in bonds. So they will only do the transaction if they want them at that precise moment and the broker dealers will only do them if they find the buyer immediately. If not, they'll just tell you there is no market for your bonds right now. And I will keep you in mind. And that might take three days or three weeks. So there's a little bit of an illusion of liquidity in bonds when it, it's actually harder to sell them than we tend to think. If I go to sell a stock, there's a bid and an ask. I can see the spread. I know other than giant size, I can move pretty much any stock in my portfolio. But if I have a very specific bond from a specific, whether it's a corporate or a, a sovereign or a state and local bond, you're saying it's not quite as easy to, to hit that bid as it is with a stock. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's why there are no time and sales in bonds. You'll never see, in stocks you can say, I put in my order at 11.14 in the morning. Give me all the transactions between 11.14 and 11.15. And your order has to be there. No time stamp in bonds. No time stamp in bonds. You know, it might be three days or three minutes later when the transaction is done. And you, you want to have basically the same price if you're selling or buying for different clients. So you cannot buy little pieces and add it up because it becomes very complicated to allocate in the right way the different transactions. Huh, quite, quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about that lack of liquidity. I'm, I'm intrigued by your description of the bond market. Um, is this something that's relatively new? Was there always this much lack of liquidity? How has the market changed over the past 30 years since you launched LM Capital? I think that up to 2009, the market was pretty stable and there was enough money in the different broker dealers to make a market. You know, they would buy the bond, keep it there, and wait for somebody to come up and meaning buy it. Meaning hold it in inventory and exactly. then when a buyer comes along, they would take exactly. it out of inventory. Now Not so much anymore. It's gone. Gone. You know, probably it went from, uh, five, uh, Merrill Lynch went from 8 or $10 billion to maybe a couple hundred million. Is that a risk management tool or are they still suffering a little post-traumatic stress disorder after the crisis? Is this, is this smart of them or is this problematic by them? I think that they're being smarter in the way they allocate their capital. Mm -hmm. I think that the spreads in bonds are not that high for them to make sense to keep them in inventory, and they're being much tighter with the way they handle their money. Hmm. Very, very interesting. 
What about the rise of ETFs, which are clearly not just stocks, they're giant bond ETFs. How is that affecting both the way you run LM Capital and, and the way liquidity for specific bonds uh, behaves in the, in the market? I think ETFs are not the right way to play the bond market. I think that they are very big, but I don't think they impact the market that much. The problem is when it becomes a herd mentality. Uh-huh. If everybody's selling, you magnify the problem. Again, when there's a trend to get out of the bonds, you need you don't find the buyers. When there's a trend to buy the bonds, it's hard to find the sellers. So the ETFs magnify the problem instead of making it less problematic. So I have a couple of questions on that. That's really, really intriguing. So first, when there's that herd mentality, like we saw in 08, 09, isn't everything being sold regardless? When, 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 when the herd stampedes, everything seems to get run over. Is that any different for bonds, stocks, or ETFs? It no, it works the same way, but you don't have the dramatic crashes that you saw in stocks. The bargain hunters are probably not going to jump in because the bond dropped two or three points. Right. Two or three points is huge in bonds. In stocks, you can see moves of 10 or 20%. Right. Two or three points is a Tuesday. Nothing Exactly. Here's the question that pops into my head. Knowing that there's no guarantee of liquidity in the future... How does that affect your process for selecting what bonds you want to put into your portfolio? You you obviously have an awareness. Hey, when the time comes, there may not be the liquidity I'm hoping for if I have to move these in a uh, emergency. That's a very good question, Barry. What we try to do is buy global issues, very big issues that a lot of people hold in their portfolios. You know, at one time, you would find a good issue of a hundred or a couple hundred million dollars. We go for the billion-dollar issues at least, and we want the names that people want to hold in their portfolio. There are some managers that try to create alpha from buying smaller issues because the issuer is forced to pay a bit more because of the smaller size of the issue. We don't like that. We want to have the ability to get out whenever we want. So the liquidity premium isn't worth the risk to you? It's not. Hmm, quite quite interesting. So I've had this little personal theory for the past couple of years that part of the reason yields are as low as they are is that there's a shortage of quality sovereign bonds. We haven't been running the usual annual deficits over the past 10 years, although clearly they've started to tick up post-crisis and, and most recently. And that there's so much capital around and such a demand for quality fixed income that it gets hoovered up by all the buyers and that helps to keep a lid on on rates. Am, am I remotely accurate or is that a crackpot you, theory? You are accurate even though deficits have not been shrinking on the country that have been growing bigger. Over half of the sovereign bonds now have negative yields. $9.7 trillion, mostly European bonds, are negative. And, and we see Japan frequently dips into. So by negative yield, you mean, here, I'm going to give you a pile of money, and I, you're going to give me most of it back, but not all of it because the yield is actually I'm not gonna, positive. I'm going to pay you to hold my money which makes no sense. At one time, many years ago, the only country that had this was Switzerland. 
that showed that they wanted to sell the concept of safety. And they said, this is like a vault. Money that comes in here is totally protected, so I'm going to charge you for the use of my vault. (laughs) Nowadays, it's Germany, it's Japan, it's uh, Northern Europe. It's $9.7 trillion. So the only play there, if you're an investor, is hoping that the currency because you are investing in the local currency. Uh-huh. It's mostly euros or yens. Your hope is that the euro gains against the dollar or the yen gains against the dollar. But there are much better ways to play currencies than to buy bonds. You know, To invest a million dollars in bonds hoping for an increase in the value of the currency, you can do a fraction of that investment right. and do futures, and you're in the same game. With, so, with far less risk. Absolutely. Another interesting situation is the LDI, the long duration management of pension plans. Mm-hmm. They are buying bonds with the maturity that matches their liabilities. Mm-hmm. But with bonds that are not growing in value, it's incredibly expensive to match, I mean, because they're not growing. So if you're going to pay a million dollars a year, 30 years from now, or a million euros, you have to buy a million thirty thousand euros in order to have a million back. So it's very hard to manage money against with LDI when you have negative yields. Hmm. Quite quite fascinating. So your firm uses something called scenario planning to mitigate against global event risk. E- explain what that is and how can you actually reduce risk about events overseas? We think of all the weird things that could happen, Barry. All the weird things that could happen. I mean, we have a scenario, hopefully it will never happen, but for another 9-11, we have a scenario for the uh, bankruptcy of a money center bank. We have a scenario for oil going down to 20 or over 100. We have a scenario of uh, North Korea throwing a bomb. And we try to play through what our reaction would be to that event. So we're not caught by surprise if, God forbid, they happen. So we know that if X or Y happens, we're going to be selling or buying the bonds, whether we're going to be shortening or lengthening our duration. And we replay scenarios almost, I mean, formally once a quarter, informally, it can be any day. You're driving in and you hear a news in the radio and you say, well, that might cause a change in the environment. What would we do? So we go into the conference room. Everybody participates. We use the blackboard and we try to develop a response to the event. Hmm. So so you mentioned, um, that. that's really quite interesting. So, so you mentioned... Uh, the nine plus trillion dollars in negative yielding sovereign debt, given those liabilities that pension funds and really just retirement accounts are going to have, where can people go to find yields without adding leverage or adding a, a whole lot of risk to their portfolios? That is something that's keeping a lot of people awake at night. Pension plans have a fiduciary responsibility that grows at about 8% per year, and they're not getting those returns from their portfolios. 
they need to have fixed income. It's like the retaining wall in the portfolio and the source of liquidity if needed. But if that fixed income is yielding, say they have 20% in fixed income. Mm-hmm. If the yield there is 2 or 2.5%, the other 80 would have to generate 10% in order to make up for what they're not making in fixed income. So they're going more and more to private equity, to venture capital, areas that are definitely much riskier. And we can see what happened in 09 that the drop in value of individual accounts or pension plans was dramatic. They're looking for alternatives in fixed income, for example, bank loans, Mm-hmm. which in reality is just high yield with a floating rate. They're doing more and more high yield and moving down in the rating to towards the Cs, which again is very dangerous. Or a new asset class that's become much more interesting, which is emerging market debt. Mm-hmm. At one time, the sovereign bonds in the emerging countries, countries like Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, China, South Korea, we're paying three to 400 basis more than comparable risks in the U.S. That's now, come down though, hasn't it? It has come down a lot, but you can still find very, very good corporate names in the emerging world, both in local currency and dollar denominated, that can give you a very sizable pickup and allow your fixed income portfolio to be closer to your needs in terms of growth than what you get out from the traditional U.S.-based core fixed. So if I'm a U.S. investor and I'm not happy with 2.5% yield on traditional treasuries, how much additional risk am I assuming going to either emerging market bonds on a sovereign basis or EM bonds on a corporate basis to pick up another 200 basis points? Is that a fair amount? At least. To be honest, if you ask me, I don't think you're get, picking any additional risk. I think the, if you buy a company that's solid investment grade in their own country mm-hmm. and that generates, let's say you bought dollar-denominated bonds and they generate the dollars in to pay you back both interest and principal so they don't have to buy them in a tough time when their currency could have devalued, you are taking no additional risk. Let me give an example. Uh, Bimbo, the Mexican bread company, almost 65% of their sales are abroad. You know, they are the largest producer in 14 countries, and they're present in about 55 countries where they sell bread. It's a staple. It's a company that's been in the market for 100 years. They are double A plus in Mexico. Their paper is yielding almost 5%. Wow. That is... If I took away the name and showed you the financials, you would say this is a double-A company in the U.S., and it would be paying maybe 310 320 So you're picking up 200-plus over against a, a credit paper in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and almost 300 over against a U.S. equivalent mm-hmm. from a treasury bond. So you really are gaining a lot in a company that basically has no risk. So how much of this is just the home country bias? If you live in the U.S., you tend to buy U.S. stocks and bonds. If you live in Germany, you tend to buy German stocks and bonds, and the same is true in Australia or wherever. How significant is that to that giant gap between 
domestic and emerging market yields. That uh, pride of national product used to be very prevalent. It's no longer there. The markets have become so global that buyers in Singapore or, or Berlin or New York are, are buying from everywhere. So, so what accounts for that 200, 250 basis point difference in yield? It's the perception of things that happened in the late 90s and the beginning of the 2000s where one country got in trouble and all the other countries got in trouble. It has to have more work done to understand what you're buying. In the U.S., and even the credibility of the rating agencies in the U.S. has dropped a lot after 2009. But here, you see an A-rated bond, and you don't get too much into analyzing whether they will pay you back or not. You believe if Standard & Poor's and Moody's said it's good, you take it for granted. I'm, I'm assuming, or I'm guessing, that you don't put a lot of stock in what the credit rating agencies say. You guys do your own due diligence in all of these? Absolutely. And... Remember that emerging, just taking back into credit in emerging countries, 80% of the companies are still run by the founding family that took them public in order to create liquidity and a state for, for estate purposes. Go, go back a second. I want to make sure I got, caught that statistic right. In emerging market nations, 80% of the um Businesses or of the publicly traded businesses? Of the publicly traded businesses. Are still run by the founding family. Right. That's amazing. It's incredible. There was a, a radio company that went public here in the NYSE, and governance, I mean, the 11 board members' last name was Aguirre. It was all brothers, nephews, and nieces, and the New York Stock Exchange did not like it. They said, you know, this is not good. ESG-wise, is horrible. You know, <laughs> governance, when the whole family is in the board, does not work. But that's pretty typical, you're saying. It is. So what you have to understand, besides the financials, is who those families are. Mm -hmm. So you need to do social analysis. You have to understand whether you're funding a new plant or you're funding a new G5 that the that the chairman wants to believe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know if a the, new Gulf Stream versus a new exactly. bread making plant. You want to understand that they're investing your money in th something that will be productive and create more wealth for the shareholders or the bondholders and not something that will bring more satisfaction to the founding family. Huh. That that is that is really um fascinating. I had no idea. I'm I'm, I'm learning a lot today. So I think people have changed the way they view and, and think about debt over the past 30 years. Um, how do you see that? Well, first of all, do you, do you agree? Do you see uh, the perception of debt having changed in society? And how does that affect building a bond portfolio? At some time, debt was seen as a bad thing. A bit. Yeah. And now some of that's a little bit of a holdover from the Great Depression generation who never wanted to risk having a bank call something away from them. Exactly. Having debt meant that you were at risk. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, debt makes sense for corporations. They don't dilute their shareholders. Their EPS are higher, and management is basically paid by the... Their bonuses are based on the value of their stock. Mm -hmm. So if you can borrow cheaply and buy back stock or do things without selling more equity, 
the performance of your equity will probably be better. So it's become a tool of growth without dilution. And I saw once uh, the CFO of Merck being interviewed, and he said they asked him why did he borrow $2 billion when he had in, in cash almost $11 billion. And he said, you know, at 230 for three-year paper, I could, and being a tax deductible, I could not sleep if I didn't take out that money. So in other words, the way the tax laws are set up around debt versus equity, c- corporate management is incentivized to borrow versus using capital. Exactly. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to borrow and then buy back stock. Mm-hmm. Dividends are not tax deductible. Companies were borrowing or are borrowing below what they're paying in dividends. So if they retire that stock, then they're making money in the spread. Huh. That That is quite fascinating. Can you stick around a little bit? I have some more questions for you. Sure. We have been speaking with Louise Maisel of LM Capital Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things fixed income and emerging market related. You can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold, Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, Stitcher, Overcast, etc. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can follow my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion or check me out on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast, Louise. Thank you so much for doing this. This is really an interesting conversation. I, I sometimes will chat with people. Um, who do you have on the show this week? Oh, I have Louise Mazel. He's a you know emerging market bond manager, and I'll uh, I'll get that yawn back from them. And it's like, well, tell me when you have somebody interesting on. But this is really fascinating stuff. There is so much more to emerging market bond analysis than I think the average. Um, stock jockey really appreciates, um, and you you are expressing it in a way that I find intriguing. Um, there are a few questions I did not get to during the broadcast portion that I have to run through. Let me let me run through those before we get to our uh, favorite questions. Um, I've heard over the years that bond investors are the smart money. That's where the bond vigilantes come from. Why is that? Why is bond investing considered, quote-unquote, the smart money? I would not say smart money. It's the safe money. It should be the safe money. Nowadays, with leverage and with what's happening in the markets, you need to have a portion of your portfolio ready for events that might alter the value of the whole portfolio. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have situations like the unicorns that the more money they lose, the more valuable they are. That's literally true. There was a column in in Bloomberg that 
uh, of all the past 18 months of IPOs, the worse the financials were, the better the first day IPO pop was. What you need to see is that bonds bonds have much more meat in them. It's less hope and it's more reality. Mm-hmm. So when you say smart money, it means people have to analyze that you are lending to somebody that will pay you back. I mean, let's take Lyft, for a, for example. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's ha- going to happen with Lyft five years from now. I would not buy a bond from Lyft, a five-year paper, because who kn- as I didn't buy a Tesla bond. You know, if I buy a Tesla stock, I'm betting that electric cars or self-driving cars are going to do very well. Mm-hmm. Their bonds did very poorly. You know, they came out at par. They're not trading at 88 cents on the dollar. So it's a situation where leverage is dangerous when you're not making any money. Bond analysis requires much more substance than stock analysis. So what about um, risk mitigation? What sort of tools do you use to, to control the risk you have? Well, we stress the portfolio based on uh, if rates move up 100 bips, 200 bips. We do it in either direction. We try not to concentrate in one industry. We personally impose some restrictions to our portfolio. We don't do casualty insurance, for example. Why not? We don't want to read about a tsunami and all of a sudden it turned out that the bonds of the company we hold were insuring every single house that was destroyed by the tsunami. So that's pretty much just a straightforward geographical diversification approach. We don't do newly deregulated industries. That saved us from Enron, from WorldCom. We never did the airlines, for example. Wait, back up a sec. Newly deregulated industries are a higher risk bond than is widely perceived? Management, let me give an example. Pacific Gas and Electric, or at that time Pacific companies, they were running a utility, they were selling power, and all of a sudden they were deregulated. They went out and bought the thrifty chain of drugstores. Wait, so when when was PG&E and and California Utilities deregulated? In the 90s. And they found out that selling Crest toothpaste was not the same as selling power. (laughs) Two two years later, they sold the company at a loss of $1.5 billion, and they had their bonds downgraded because of it. If a manager was running an airline and he had specific routes, he could not move from them, all of a sudden he's competing with Joe and his brother who bought three planes and are doing these small cities. It became very dangerous to compete in that market. We saw every major airline go through bankruptcy. Uh, communications, you had the big, I mean, big Mabel. You knew that Big Mabel was the safest company in the world. Right. Widow and orphan stock, for sure. When, when they broke them up, you know, they ended up, I mean, the WorldComps came up in the world, and the WorldComp ended up going broke. So that's another one of the areas we don't do. And the third one is nuclear power. And it's not for environmental reasons. It's if some idiot forgot to close a valve, the plant might end up in a different state. Right. So, whoops, <laughs> the Washington State Utility had a major problem with their nuclear plant. Three Mile Island is another example. Pennsylvania, yeah. We don't want to take the risk of an error 
creating a situation where our bonds would dramatically change in rates. So if I were to go around the country and look at the utilities that have nuclear power plants on their books, their bonds are going to be trading at a, at a discount to what, non-nuclear utilities? Or is this just specific to That's your That's specific shop? to LM. Does, does anybody else do that? I don't know. But for us, that risk mitigation is very important. And then we overlay our scenario planning. So we try to avoid anything that we would have to get out very quickly if something happened. I don't think you're paid enough to take a little bit of an additional risk. Mm -hmm. If you were paying me another 300 bips, uh, I mean 3% more in interest, to taking a, to take additional risk, I would consider it. If you pay me five bips, 0.05 of a percent more, it's not worth it. Not worth it. So, so you had mentioned the rating agencies. Clearly, they did a terrible job during the financial crisis. We later learned that their whole business model had shifted from the bond buyers paying their fees to the issuers paying their fees. And it became a payola, pay-for-play sort of situation. And if I walk into uh, one of the, if I walk into S and P, and they don't give me the double A rating I want, I'll just say no thanks, and I'll go across the street to Moody's, and I will be able to purchase whatever rating I I want. So, given that, do you put any consideration into to what the rating agencies do, either either whether they cover a bond or a country or an industry? or a specific upgrade or downgrade? How, how important is that? Well, we do follow them. We do read what they print, and we do take into account their rating because they have good analysis. After 09, they've strengthened their, uh, their analysis. I think that in the case of the mortgages, they just did not understand the product. So it was not only the pay-to-play, but it was also lack of understanding how the different tranches would behave in a crisis. But first of all, the change in rating is not that impactful anymore. Uh -huh. you know, when you went from a triple B to a triple B minus, the bond at one time would drop three points. Now it might drop a quarter of a point. So how much of that is due to the fact that they did such a terrible job when they were needed in the last, last crisis? It does impact what's happening, but... The perception of whether you cover your needs 3.2 times or 3 times or 2.9 does not make that big a difference. <clears throat> Even in the case of, I mean, and now triple Bs are the vast majority of bonds. You know, they're borderline between investment grade right. and high yield or Low junk. investment grade. That's the nicest way of saying junk. <laughs> you know, But they're still considered investment grade. They're investable for anyone who's... Um, charter or portfolio policy statement says only investment grade. Exactly. and But most pension plans, for example, today have a bunch of non-investment grade bonds in their books. At one time, you would think that that change would eliminate basically who could buy those bonds. And ever since Michael Milken in the 80s, the he created an industry for non-investment grade bonds. I mean, he did not invent the high-yield bonds. He just invented who could buy them. Mm -hmm. He went to the thrifties, uh, thrifts. He went to the savings and loans. He went to the insurance companies. And then the pension plan said, well, 
let's make that also an asset class in which we can invest. So, so let's talk about those pension funds for a moment. You mentioned during the broadcast portion that their allocation has been gearing more towards alternatives like venture capital and private equity and uh, hedge funds uh, because they're looking for a higher total expected return, which they're not just, they apparently are not getting from stocks and bonds, but they also haven't been getting them from the alternatives. They've been, they're expensive. I like to jokingly say, Come, come for the high fees, stay for the underperformance. But uh, in all seriousness, they have built out 10, 20, 30, sometimes even 40% of their total portfolios with these alternatives, and they've slapped a very high expected return, 6, 8, 10% on these. Uh, why is that? How can they just say, even though we have decades of data showing that these are not going to get 8%, we're still going to put an expected return of 8% on this. What what does that do to the allocations? They were getting those results years ago. In the 80s and 90s, yes, sure. because there was not that much competition. Right. There's been so much money that has gone into alternatives that now they're competing for deals and the yields are, are lower. That's just that's just market efficiency, isn't it? Correct. You can't you can't have these big fat margins without attracting other people to say I'd like a little bit of that. I tend to joke saying that hope is not a strategy. Right. And a lot of the buying of private equity and venture is hoping that in the future they will be worth much more. If you own stocks or you own bonds, the value is there every day. You know, you run a statement, you check what the value of your stocks are, you can find out the value of your portfolio every day. If you have private equity, you have no clue how much is it worth. When it goes public, when there's a liquidity event, then is when you know what happens. But it might take five or 10 years, and you never know the real value of your investment. And you can always put any increased value you want, and it will show us though you're doing well. And you might or might not get that value that you put it down in your statement. So, so the non-publicly traded uh, assets give people the ability to mark to not mark to market, but mark to uh, what hopes and dreams. Is that what you're suggesting? It's not that bad, but the answer is yes. You know, it's we used to call it mark to make believe in the middle of the crisis, but it's not. You're not, we're not suggesting that. You're saying it gives them a little bit of accounting flexibility. Exactly. I think that things are worth what a buyer is willing to pay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that if you ask 10 people what their house is worth, you're going to get 10 responses that are higher than the actual market. But value. that's an emotional bias. That that makes some sense. It makes It's the same as when they're valuing companies. Endowment effect is, is certainly present. You know, you want to believe that everybody is going to see the same that you are seeing. And the buyer, even if they perceive that the value is the same as you do, they're going to fight to get it lower. They still you know, want a discount, of course. Absolutely. You know, nobody likes to pay retail. Sure. So you are really thinking, hoping that you're going to get the values you're putting down in the statement. And that does not necessarily going to happen. Sometimes you're going to be very pleasantly surprised but most of the time you won't. So I used to joke with a friend who was at a pension fund about 
what I perceived as their absurd uh, expected returns on their alternatives. And the response was, we need 7 or 8%. So I used to say, well, let's assume you get 2.5% from your bond portfolio and you get 5% from your equities. Add them up. There's your 7.5%. And it took him a moment to realize, well, that's not how you do a blended portfolio. <laughs> but it's every bit as ridiculous as expecting 10% from asset classes that haven't returned that sort of number for 20 or 30 years. You're right. But you're always kicking the can a little bit further away. So probably by the time the pension plan runs out of money, you will <laughs> not be, be there. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that you say that half-jokingly, but we know that's true. Governments, state and local governments, have done that with their police pension funds and their fire pension funds and their teacher funds, that by the time it's really problematic— the politicians responsible for that, they're long out of office. It's someone else's headache. How can we realign the incentives so that we're not just kicking the can down the road? Or is that just human nature and this is what's going to happen? Look at the state of Illinois. They have excellent managers managing the money at the pension plans, and they're underfunded by, I mean, they probably are funded 40% or right. 35 It's politicians that have not wanted to raise the contributions that are trying to be reelected so they don't pressure the public workers to give more of their salary into their pension plan. And, you know, it's now a huge problem because they're running out of money. So there are certain states that have uh, high taxes and big state spending, but seem to have their budgets and their pension plans more under control. California comes to mind. New York comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Amongst the states, a little better or, or a lot better. Uh, clearly, Chicago and Illinois have problems. I hear about problems in New Jersey and Connecticut. Both have pension issues. How significant is this going to be for funding um, in the next 20 to 30 years? It's a huge problem. Huge. Huge. Look at really? Detroit. Detroit had to file for bankruptcy because of the pension plan. So now, what ha so now if you're a company and you file for bankruptcy— judges have a tendency, courts have a tendency to say, uh, before you even get to the creditors, employee compensation, salary and pensions, is sacrosanct. We don't touch that. What happened in Detroit with the the employee pensions post-bankruptcy? Some of it were cut down. Cities can go bankrupt. States cannot by law. Right. But, you know, they got to the point where they were about to sell the paintings from the museum in Detroit right. in order to pay pension plans. Uh, the city is being re revitalized, and they hope that eventually they're going to pull out. But again, hope to me, hope is not a strategy. Right. So we know that post-hurricane Puerto Rico has had, or let's, let's phrase that a little differently, post-hurricane it was revealed— the precarious state of, of Puerto Rico's finances, sort of like Greece to the EU, Puerto Rico managed to borrow at rates that were more suitable for the U.S. than for Puerto Rico. They're not a state. They're not a city. They're a, they're a um, territory. What happens with that situation? Are they going to be able to get a refinancing? Is bankruptcy even an option for a non-state, non-city territory? Well, first, they can go through bankruptcy with the state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but Puerto Rico had a big problem even before the hurricane. Right. And, you know, their electric company had been in trouble 
paying back even before the hurricane. So they are still fighting it. They're still fighting with bondholders uh-huh. and the pen- the public workers are crossing their fingers that their pension will be there when they need they, it. They were suffering a brain drain before the hurricane because if you're in Puerto Rico and you're making X and you could just take a plane to Florida or Texas or wherever you want to go, because you're a U.S. citizen, you could get a job with that skill and make one and a half or two X they seem to have lost a lot of really talented people. They have, even though they created a lot of incentives for people to go live in Puerto Rico. Very low taxes now, Very right? low taxes. The first year you pay, I think, 3%. 3% income tax. Yes. That's not too shabby. A lot of big, big money managers. That's federal income, income tax, not yes. state. Exactly. So instead of a top rate of 37, your top rate is 3. Yeah. Hedge fund managers have moved to, have moved to Puerto Rico. The weather's not too bad either. It's not too bad. <laughs> Good beaches. Huh. So I only have you for um, uh, a limited amount of time. Uh, let me get to some of my favorite questions I ask all of my guests. It adds a little bit of a sort of cinema verite when I move off mic. And people can tell that I'm, I'm doing that. I, I kind of like that, especially at the end, not during the broadcast portion. Um, but let's jump to these questions. Uh, we'll, we'll call this our speed round. So what was the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model? 1966 Dodge Dart. Dodge. They were, my sister had one of those. I, it was a 66 or 67. Those cars could not be killed. They were 300,000-mile cars from the 60s. I wish it had been my sister's and not mine. <laughs> so you had a problem with it. <laughs> I did not like it, but Real, that's, well, what, it that's what my father gave me. It wasn't the prettiest car, but they were kind of indestructible for that. They were. Um, tell us the most important thing that your friends and family don't know about you. Uh, I love red wine. That's my passion, and I'm a collector. Ah, very interesting. Who are some of your early mentors who helped shape your view of the fixed income markets and investing? Leontief, a Nobel Prize winner, a professor at Harvard. Uh, before I really knew, got to know him, Bill Gross. <laughs> before you got to know him, not after. Not after. And uh, I would say that the mentor was my father, not in terms of investing, but in terms of values. Mm-hmm. Hard work is the only thing that makes you do well. M- makes makes a lot of sense. Um, tell us about your favorite books. What are you reading? What what do you recommend other people read? Fiction, nonfiction, investing related, whatever. In fiction, I love the uh, Mill Nelson the Mill. I love the series by Ken Follett. And in nonfiction, I'm reading now a great book of the woman that ran the spy network for the French in the Second World War, Madame Fourcade. And I love Harari, the Israeli guy that's part historian, part philosopher. Uh, the 21 Questions for the 21st Century is an amazing book. Really? I read Sa- same guy who wrote Sapiens. Sapiens and then Homo, Homo Deus. Right, which was a little darker than Sapiens. Yeah, and now the 21 Questions for the 21st Century is a great book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that one on my list. The... um. The Ken Follett series, he's had a number of different series. Which one are you referring to? Both. Uh, the Pillars of the Earth, the one mm-hmm. about the building of the cathedral, and then the one that takes him through the three wars. Right. I mean, his writing is amazing. I love historic novels. Mm-hmm. That, that's really quite interesting. 
Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. When I was living in Mexico, uh, I found the smoking withdrawal system from Waterpeak. So I flew to Fort Collins, uh, negotiated with them the representation in Mexico, brought it to Mexico, and then found out that Mexicans did not want to stop smoking. <laughs> so it was not a good business. I just thought that I could carry over what was happening in the U.S. to Mexico, and you have to understand local mentality and local desires. Is that still true? Are Mexicans still big tobacco smokers relative to what it was like 30 years ago? It's lower, but it's much bigger than in the U.S. I mean, it's full on. I grew up in a... I've never been a smoker. My parents were smokers. They eventually stopped. But in the United States, it's fallen off a cliff. Like it's, Like, it's almost noteworthy when you see someone in the street with a, a cigarette. I'm not even talking about vaping. An actual tobacco cigarette, it's almost like, you know, a, a rarity. It's like spotting a wild unicorn. In Mexico, you cannot open a restaurant without a terrace for smokers. Real, but they're not allowed to smoke in the restaurant no, but proper. That's a smaller part of the restaurant. Huh. That That's amazing. Um, what do you do for fun? You mentioned red wine. What else do you do to stay busy out of the office? Traveling, reading, watching sports on TV, and playing some golf. What what sports do you watch? I watch uh, basketball, and I watch golf. And my wife says that I would watch jacks if they show the tournament. <laughs> um, what has you most excited about the bond market these days? What What are you enthusiastic about? I love the idea that emerging market that has become an asset class and almost everybody's now pursuing it. We've been at it for 30 years and I think one of the stronger firms in the country on it. So if a young college grad or millennial came up to you and said they were interested in a career in fixed income, what sort of advice would you give them? Try to go beyond what you read in the in the financials. I mean, reading financials is one thing. Understanding what the company does or who runs it is probably more important than anything. Huh. And our final question, what do you know about the world of bond investing today that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you first launched the firm? That the trend towards lower rates was going to last 30 years. I would have made a ton of money. <laughs> I would bought, have bought only 30-year paper. It, it wasn't obvious back then that this was the start of a three-decade-long bull market? No. The, uh, we were coming out, I mean, from the Jimmy Carter days with big inflation, and globalization had not taken over yet. Mm-hmm. So boom and bust was still part of the story of the economy in the U.S. The economy in the U.S. has changed so much. You know, it's no longer that globalization. If there's a crisis, all you do is call your supplier and say, in China or in Mexico, and you tell them, don't ship the next six months. You don't have to shut down a plant. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. We have been speaking to Louise Maisel of LM Capital Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or wherever you have access to this podcast, and you could check out any of the other 250 podcasts we have broadcast over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put these conversations together each week. My producer slash audio engineer is Medina Parwana. Taylor Riggs and Michael Boyle are our bookers. 
Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.